Hello, and welcome to this special episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Back on the 15th of May 2020, when the world was in lockdown and in the full grip of the COVID pandemic, I had the very great pleasure to interview the British conductor, Bramwell Tovey. I had played under his baton many years before, when he had come and conducted the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra on a few occasions in the mid-1990s. I remembered enjoying playing for him, and I know I was not the only one. When I started this podcast, he was a conductor that I knew I wanted to interview, and thanks to our mutual friend, Alistair Malloy, who introduced us to each other, he graciously accepted my invitation. We chatted for a long time, and even carried on for another six minutes after we'd finished the episode. In this special episode, I have added that six-minute chat on at the end, mainly because we agreed that the next time he was over in the United Kingdom, we should meet for dinner and carry on chatting. Sadly, that never happened, and on July the 12th, 2022, one day after his 69th birthday, Bramwell Tovey died. As you will hear, at the time of recording, he'd been given the all-clear from his cancer. But I'm led to believe it returned in January 2022, and eventually he lost his battle with it. In the many tributes following his death, he's been described as, quote, a musician's conductor whose warmth, sense of humour and artistic leadership will be sorely missed, and praised for his, quote, joyful human approach to music making. I found him to be just a lovely man who wanted to chat about conducting, wanted to tell me his story, and also wanted to make me laugh. He will be sorely missed on both sides of the Atlantic, especially the orchestras in Sarasota, Rhode Island, and the BBC Concert Orchestra, where he was chief conductor. Personally, I wish I'd met him and spoken to him much more often, because I absolutely loved the 90 minutes I spent with him for this podcast. So here, as a tribute to Bramwell Tovey, is that interview with him. I hope you enjoy it. I know I did very much. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who has had a truly international career, holding positions in Luxembourg, Canada, the UK and the United States. He's also managed, during his conducting career, to also be a pianist and composer, writing music for the Opera House and the concert stage to great acclaim. It's a real pleasure to welcome Bramwell Tovey. Bramwell, what a real pleasure it is to talk to you today. Thank you, Michael. It's a great pleasure to, or Mike, as you insist on being called. Mm. Um, it's a very great pleasure to have been invited. Thank you for the invitation. I must ask, are you well? Are you in good health? I am, yes. As you, as you probably know, I had um, uh, an encounter, quite a major encounter with cancer last year. On May 27th, 2019, I became a cancer patient, but I, it transpired I'd been ill for some time. Um, I had a lump in my chest and... Uh, I couldn't breathe. I was in Banff in Alberta, uh, 7,000 feet up, um, watching an opera, um, unable to carry my suitcase from the car to the uh, hotel reception. So um, I got myself into a clinic, and uh, the next thing I know, I'm in emergency. And um, anyway, I've been, the Canadian system is fantastic. And the British Columbia um, Cancer Institute, I, I actually live at the moment in British Columbia, which is the home province of the city of Vancouver, 
is um, is anyway the BCCI is incredible, and um, I went through six months of chemo and six weeks of radiation, and then all finished on December the sixteenth. And against um, the doctor's uh, advice, I w went back to work. I had concerts with the Philadelphia Orchestra, and we started rehearsing on the eighteenth of December. I was pretty uh, pretty knackered, but. Um, got through them all. And by the way, it's nice to use the word knackered because over here in North America, <laughs> people don't know what it means. And, um, and then uh, uh, on March the 12th, I was told by my oncologist that um, there was no further cancer for the time being, touch wood, to treat and that I could travel and work. Brilliant. I haven't been able to do much so far, <laughs> but uh, you know, it's, it's, it, is, it is very good news, yeah. Brilliant news. Um, I wonder whether I could go right back to the beginning of your life. Can you tell me how music first entered into your life? Um, well, my family, well, on both sides of my family, were Salvationists. That is to say, they were um, soldiers of the Salvation Army. That means they would have been uniform adherents to the organization. Mm. And I was brought up in the Salvation Army. I was a uniform Salvationist myself until I was about 19, until I went to the Royal Academy, actually. And I, um, so there was music everywhere. My father, who died when I was 15, he played euphonium in one of the Salvation Army's preeminent brass bands, the International Staff Band, for a couple of years at the beginning of the 50s, just before I was born. My grandfather on my mother's side was also in that band between the wars and various uncles and so forth. And um, all the women were in um, either the bands or they were in the Sox Brigades. Uh, my maternal grandparents were officers, which meant they were clergy, and both men and women are equal clergy in the Salvation Army, always have been from the very beginning of the organization. So there was a lot of music around, a lot of singing, a lot of band playing. Um, in the middle of all this, we had, uh, which was sounds like musical mayhem, we had an upright piano, and I was uh, strumming along on the upright piano from, as, a, as a toy. I guess there were no video games in those days. <laughs> um, from a very early age and so my parents put me into classical piano lessons and um, I flourished in those lessons and because the Salvation Army has a great element of improvisation in its music making what happens is the preacher will strike up a hymn or strike up a refrain and the pianist has to catch the key and the tune and provide the accompaniment and I watched a lot of very fine uh, amateur musicians doing this. And I thought, wow, how do they do that? Mm. And I worked out how to do it and do it myself. So I grew up equally playing the piano classically and playing by ear, little realizing that actually that was the same skill set I needed to play a Bach continuo and to play um, jazz. So mm. I was very fortunate in having that comprehensive education and um, that allied with my school uh, which um, was my schooling was in Ilford in Essex. We lived uh, in good old Ilford, now an extension, now as then an extension of the East End of London. Um, meant that uh, I started to play in orchestras when I was about 11 in the Redbridge Music School system. I played uh, the tuba, I played uh, the trombone, I played the double bass, and very occasionally the violin. And uh, gradually, uh, I, got, I guess I got sucked in the way we all do. Mm, uh, yeah. So that's how it all began. This is like therapy, you know, Michael. It's a lot, <laughs> uh, it's a lot cheaper, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
it's fair to say, isn't it, that an awful lot of British orchestral brass players have been touched in some way by that whole Salvation Army band system. Um, I know, I know at least three from just my my time in the orchestra in Birmingham. Um, it seems to be a very good place for a, a level of learning, would you say? Well, the principal trumpet, the current principal trumpet of the London Symphony Orchestra, Philip Cobb, mm. the current principal trumpet of the London Philharmonic Orchestra, James Fountain, um, were both brought up in uh, Salvation Army families and both uh, got their early experience playing the cornet in the band. Mm. Um, they were both principal cornets of the National Youth Brass Band of Great Britain, which uh, I'm, I've been the artistic director of for the last 14 years. But yes, a huge number. And in America, uh, it's often the same too. For example, Philip Smith, who was for 38 years the principal trumpet of the New York Philharmonic, he's only just retired. Um, phenomenal trumpet player, a legendary one might say, yes. Salvationist again. Um, his father, Derek Smith, was a very famous British cornet player who um, really was one of the most um, outstanding cornet players of the brass band tradition. So. Um, there's a particular style of playing uh, that comes from the British brass band tradition, the Salvation Army based it all around hymn playing, which of course is all about having plenty of air and about phrasing and about portraying the message of the words of the hymn. Mm. And this tradition was also practiced by brass bands. So even somebody like, for example, Maurice Murphy, um, the late Maurice Murphy, who was principal trumpet of the London Symphony Orchestra, he wasn't a Salvationist, but Maurice was a great uh, proponent of brass bands. He'd been brought up and played in, had played in the Black Dyke Mills Band and of course eventually went on to play those great trumpet solos in the Star Wars movies with John Williams. All of that comes from um, the same source as Salvation Army music, which is the British brass band tradition which grew out of the Industrial Revolution at the beginning of the 19th century as different um, philanthropists and industrialists put their communities together. They wanted to have a works brass band or a, a colliery brass band. Um, it was a very good, um, a very good recreation for uh, the workers, and of course, it kept people away from the pubs. <laughs> nowadays, it might take a little more to the pubs, but it was a, it was uh, it was actually a um, it, it was a great tradition to grow up in, and um, I found myself kind of returning to all that a little bit during this lockdown period because there's not normally a time for a lot of that reflection in life and I've been thinking about those things. So that's, yeah, that's where I came from. And um, I've been actually very proud of it pretty much all the way through. I think it stood me in very good stead. I was lucky to have a classical education alongside that. Um, and uh, hey, here we are. And so at what point did conducting enter into your life? Was it before you went to the Royal Academy or was it around that time? Well, I, watched and observed the local Salvation Army bandmaster and the local conductors uh, directing orchestras and bands. And there was something about what they were doing that I thought, um, or that resonated with me. Mm. And as I watched this, of course, back then, nobody wanted to give young people a chance in conducting. Um, you had to be sort of, it was thought you had to be 40, you had to be an Anglo-Saxon male or something. I mean, it was all <laughs> preposterous back in those days. That's before your time. Mm. Um, but uh, it was a very, uh, it was a very um, lively musical life that I had. And when my father died, um, my father was a tremendous influence on me personally and musically. 
he died of cancer after a long, long battle, several years, um, in, when I was 15, back in 1968. The week after he died, um, we had a local youth orchestra concert um, at the Redbridge Music School. And after the concert was over, the next morning, we had one more rehearsal in the term. And the music advisor, whose name was Malcolm Bigwood, who's still alive, actually, in his mid-90s, mm. he said, would anyone like to try conducting? And my friends all knew that I wanted to conduct. So um, everyone engineered it. I realized now, I didn't realize at the time, that I would get to conduct the performance of the Shostakovich Festival Overture. Oh, wow. Uh, so I went from the back of the orchestra down to the front. Um, I'd had no time for preparation. And um, of course, you give, I mean, I knew technically what was required, that there was an opening fanfare in three, then it went sweeping off into uh, the presto, and uh, then at the end, the fanfare returns in grandiloquent fashion before shooting off in the prestissimo at the very mm. end of the piece. So I, I, um, I knew there was an upbeat process. I knew there was a <laughs> three pattern, and I knew there was a, it was going to be in two. And um, I set off, and it, it just flew. The orchestra knew the piece backwards. We, uh, I presided over it. Mm. Um, I could feel the sound of the orchestra on the stick, um, but uh, I wasn't sure how much I was actually responsible for. But what I did know, and I did understand very early on, is that I wasn't wrecking proceedings, which <laughs> is actually a part of what a conductor can do so easily. Yeah. So I didn't get in the way. And um, because I didn't get in the way, we got to the end of the piece, and all my friends were very, very kindly um, uh, applauded me and shuffled and all that sort of thing. And because everyone knew that my father had just died. And I went to the back of the orchestra for the whole of that weekend. I remember thinking about the visceral feeling of the stick landing in midair and the orchestra bouncing back. And I was trying to analyze, because there were no conducting lessons, there were very few books. I was trying to analyze how that worked in the musical life that I had as a pianist and as a budding composer and, and bringing the stick down. And, and I was trying to put this great circle of understanding together. Um, which of course I completely failed to do in one weekend. <laughs> yeah. But um, a, a couple of years later, I started asking friends of mine if we could get together and play some orchestral pieces. And we did some concerts and it was um, a terrific experience. And I auditioned at the Academy where I was doing a BMUS at London at the same time. At the Academy, I um, applied for the conducting course and I got on to the conducting course. And on the course was with uh, three other people. There was Jonathan McPhee, who um, became the long-term music director of the Boston Ballet, and is now one of the most famous ballet conductors in the world. Um, a lovely man who I reconnected with when I was a professor at Boston for a couple of years. Um, Adrian Leeper, who used to be the principal horn of the mm. Philharmonia Orchestra, and then became the conductor and music director of the Grand Canaria Orchestra and the Spanish Broadcasting Orchestra. I'm sorry, mm. I don't know the orchestra's proper name and some very, very scruffy bloke with tousled hair uh, called Simon <laughs> Rattle. I have no idea what happened to him. <laughs> yeah, where did he go? <laughs> uh, well, that's quite a conducting class. And who was teaching you? Well, we were under the tutelage of Morris Miles, who had been the last person to uh, conduct, I believe, in the old Queen's Hall before it was destroyed by enemy action in 1941. He turned up for a performance of the dream of uh, Gorontius the next day, Elgar said it should have a hard G, by the way, 
Gerontius. Gerontius. I always mm. wanted to say Gerontius like mm. Gerald, but uh, anyway, since this is a podcast and people are usually very um, pedantic about podcasts, I just want to show that I know both ways to pronounce it. <laughs> he turned up for his performance the next day and um, uh, they had to go to Duke's Hall of the Royal Academy to do the performance. So Morris was our teacher. He'd fallen foul of the music profession because the Yorkshire Symphony Orchestra, which had been founded after the war, had gone bankrupt early in the 50s and Morris was blamed for it. Oh. I have no idea if Morris was responsible. I don't know anything about it. But he was, um, uh, he had a great mop of white hair, a very, very long stick. He adored all the English romantics, the Elgars, the Baxes, the Deliuses and so forth. And we played and learned a lot about these things. Um, Simon and I talked about it um, once a few years ago and decided that the, the most useful things from Morris were the practical things. The practical things like, um, don't bother with this edition, look at this edition. Uh, think, think about these issues when you conduct the piece. And um, there was also a famous occasion, which I didn't witness, but which I heard about both from Simon and from other people, when he made Simon conduct with um, a telephone directory under his arm because he thought he was raising his elbows too high. So, you know, that gives you some idea of what the classes were like. Um, and they were, we used to conduct uh, pianists playing the score. And then what the best part about it was that once a week we would get the opportunity to conduct the repertoire orchestra at the academy in, for 20 minutes in um, a, a set work. So, for example, I might be asked to conduct the Flying Dutchman Overture, and I would get 20 minutes to run it and then rehearse some salient points, and then um, that will be it. They would go on to the next piece. Mm. And so the orchestra, the repertoire orchestra, went through loads of repertoire and used to do concerts once a term, and we would have a slot um, in those concerts. And so that was, um, even by today's standards, that's a, a, a fair lot of conducting. It is, yeah. I mean, a, lot, a lot of conducting students nowadays don't get as much opportunities to conduct human beings. You know, um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, not, I'm not calling two pianos in a room not human beings, but... Oh, you know, I, I would. I would. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what I mean? I mean, actually, Simon's quoted as saying, you know, conducting two pianos is, uh, in a class is great if you're going to end up conducting two pianos. Um, he's right. Uh, and so, so, you know, being able to conduct the orchestra every week is, is a wonderful thing. It, it is, and, and you learn, as you know, you learn what not to do. Um, mm. And the worst enemy of a young conductor is, uh, because how many young conductors, how many conductors, I mean, you, Michael, you've sat through thousands and yes. thousands of rehearsals in your career. You've conducted thousands of rehearsals. Mm. And how many conductors have you watched to begin with that, uh, <laughs> and to, to me, that's almost the most important thing. The first thing you have to do and the first thing you have to say. But um, you, we learn very quickly not to go uh, and also to make sure that our stick technique was very clear and that we were not wasting the musician's time mm. by having an incomprehensible um, battle technique. So everyone who went through Morris Miles's studio, um, I felt had um, an excellent battle technique. And all of us uh, used to trot down to Guivier's by the BBC near Oxford Circus and mm. buy our batons and um, have our little brown cases. I lost mine a few years ago, it was stolen, um, but um, we all did that and um, that, was, that was our life. And going to concerts, we, we would see each other at concerts and all that sort of thing. So that was a long-winded answer to a, a very precise question, I apologize. 
what were the next experiences you had with with teachers and conducting or conducting teachers or mentors well back then um i thought about i'd done a b-miles at london and um it was a very very frenetic time because um the two institutions never spoke to each other we used to get the, we used to get the tube from the royal academy over to to king's college uh, for lectures and and then we would be scheduled to you know play in the orchestra in the afternoon and if you were a tiny bit late people like morris hanford used to shout at you so <laughs> it was it was it was a it wasn't today's huggy feely snowflake world it was a pretty a pretty tough regime mm. and it was only three years as well it wasn't uh, four or five years or any options to extend so um having um uh, done all of that i want i would love to have done um a master's class or moved into a doctorate program mm. but they just didn't exist for conducting they just didn't exist anywhere as far as i was aware certainly anywhere that i was economically able to reach and i mean i've been uh, for two years at boston university i ran um, the masters and doctoral departments for young conductors and i had five amazing students and i was able to uh, shepherd and guide them and they've all gone on to uh, terrific things and um, i'm very proud of them but nothing like that existed um, when i left the academy so um, what i was lucky enough to do next was i i'd had a, a job conducting the hamwell and ealing operatic society actually simon used to go in debt for me on rehearsals of fiddler on the roof um, <laughs> and uh which um they always remind me about whenever i'm in touch with anybody from there and i went to um uh, from there, I started conducting the Hanwell Band in London, which was a, London's best brass band. I was very fortunate that there was a trumpet player in the orchestra for Fiddler on the Roof who played in the Hanwell Band. So I started doing Radio 3 broadcasts um, with the band. My predecessor was Eric Brevington, who was the managing director of the London Philharmonic Orchestra and had been a famous trumpet player in the 50s, had sat next to Malcolm Arnold in the LPO in the early 50s. And Eric um, was a very kind uh, mentor at that time. Um, and uh, I didn't know him very well. He was just a, a real gentleman and somebody that I could chat with. Um, and from there, somebody at London Festival Ballet heard that I had left the Academy after doing conducting and that I played the piano. And would I come and audition for um, an assistant conductor job? So I went and I conducted the prologue and act one of the Sleeping Beauty at the Hippodrome in Birmingham. Oh wow! I'm saying that, I'm saying that now because it might have been the might have been the Alexandra Theatre. There is an Alexandra Theatre, isn't there in Birmingham? There is, yes, there is. I, I think I th actually think the audition I did was there, and then subsequently I, I worked in the Hippodrome. Anyway, I came to uh, Birmingham and conducted that, and uh, I went home and I didn't hear anything for a while. And then Graham Bond, the principal conductor, invited me to come and take up position there. And um, Graham was a wonderful conductor whose life has been dedicated um, mostly to ballet, although he has done opera and a lot of symphonic work. But he's, um, he's a wonderful man. And he saw something in me that he thought was worth pursuing. And for three years, I worked uh, in the company. I would play the piano all day in rehearsals, uh, orchestral scores and all kinds of things. And then um, in the evening, I would either watch the performances or I would conduct. 
So we, we, we would do eight performances a week and there were three of us on staff, Graham and another conductor. Um, for most of the time I was there, it was a man called David Coleman and then myself. And, um, and we would do two or three performances each a week. And from there, I, I got a job conducting as a music director of the Scottish Ballet. So I moved up to Glasgow and I was then in charge myself. I was only 24, 25 by this point. And it was the first time I'd had responsibility for auditioning professional musicians, for appointing them. We had our own orchestra. They were terrific. And um, I really enjoyed my time there. And halfway through that, uh, halfway through the 80s, actually in 1982, it wasn't halfway through, I went back to London and I started working for the Royal Ballet Organization. First of all, with Sadler's Wells Royal Ballet and then with the Royal Ballet at Covent Garden. And um, I started working as a repetitor of piano uh, with singers. I started coaching, conducting a lot of opera. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, it, there wasn't really, you mentioned the word mentor. There wasn't mm. really any kind of a mentor system. There were assistant conductor jobs only at the B Bournemouth Symphony and at the BBC Scottish. Mm. Now, famously, Simon went to both those organizations. I think Simon will probably tell you this, that he was very unhappy indeed when he was in Bournemouth. He didn't um, enjoy the experience. Uh, being a young conductor in an apprenticeship is not, uh, I mean, I know this from having had so many assistants myself. It's not, it can't be easy at times. No. And, um, and then, but then he went to the BBC Scottish where his career just mushroomed and, uh, and took off. And, um, but those were the only two orchestras uh, I can recollect when I was a young conductor that even had anything vaguely approaching um, apprentice positions. And it's so good, think, it's good that more orchestras have that now, I think. Um, oh, isn't it just, it's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I'm, it, it's funny because I spoke to Chris, Christopher Seaman, oh, who, yes. who was a uh, principal conductor in Scotland at the time that he, he gave or they gave Simon that job. And uh, and he said much the same that you know there were only those two jobs and because he'd already had had that job that the the BBC were thinking well he's already had one of these jobs he, we can't give him another another one but Christopher said he insisted um, and, <laughs> and, and and thank God he did we you know um, Simon might have ended up doing something you know or not being the, quite the conductor he eventually became. I really, I really, I really like Chris Seaman. He's a yeah. lovely, lovely man. He's mm. very, very funny. And he's a wonderful musician. He's been here as a guest in Vancouver um, when I was music director a couple of times. And I got to know him. We actually have the same manager. Yeah. And um, I just, I really, really like him. Uh, yeah, he's a lovely his, man. His book on conducting is terrific. Really, yes. really good. Yes, I told yeah. him so as well. And he was very pleased to hear it. Um, <laughs> oh, one more um, mention of conductors of that time. In 1986, I read that you stood in at the Bernstein Festival in London, and it ended up with you meeting Bernstein and going to Tanglewood. What was that like? What was he like? <laughs> um, how long have you got? <laughs> uh, he was, um, first of all, what was he like? To me, he was unbelievable. Mm. He was incredibly supportive. The whole thing was a surreal experience. I was, um, I'd written a score for the ballet of the Snow Queen with choreography by David Bentley, which was due to be premiered on the Monday night. It was the 28th, 29th of April, those few days in 1986. And I was at home on the Sunday night, ironing two in the morning, 
when Clive Gildenson rang me, who was the administrator of the ISO then, he's now at Carnegie Hall, as you know. Mm -hmm. And Clive said, um, I've done some um, education concerts with the LSO and I've done some of their LSO shell activities and I'd made my debut with them in 1984 doing an all Beethoven concert. So I was kind of known to them. Mm. And he said, uh, Lucas Foss is too ill to conduct the opening night of our Bernstein Festival. The orchestra's on deck at 10 o'clock this morning in eight hours, that was. Mm. Will you come and we'll give you the scores when you arrive because the, we sent them out to the program note annotators and we don't have any other copies. And you know, one of those moments where you, you could say, well, I don't know. Yeah. But you pause for a second and you go, all right. Mm -hmm. And it's inside your heart is racing and pumping. And the, oh, there was one little caveat, uh, Clive said, um, Bernstein will be at the concert, but he doesn't want to conduct um, he wants to just attend this concert because he's conducting later in the festival. Mm. So, you know, being in the flush of ignorance because I was young, I was 32, um, I, I was also pretty experienced by this time. I'd been conducting professionally for just over 10 years. Mm. I went to um, the Barbican the next morning and I got the scores in front of the orchestra. They were handed to me. And um, I can, I sight read some of these scores, which is pretty terrifying with the LSO. But the LSO were amazing. They were so, so supportive. We spent the day rehearsing. Um, the only piece that I'd conducted before was Rhapsody in Blue with John Ogden as the soloist. And he was, uh, I'd actually done Rhapsody in Blue with John Ogden um, in a concert the previous year. So that, that was okay. Except uh, John Ogden was very sick at that point and it wasn't. Um, although he was the loveliest man imaginable, it wasn't an easy musical experience. Anyway, that's another story. Um, the next day, um, I went up to Birmingham that night, did my uh, premiere of the new ballet, and the next morning I came back, and I was halfway through Fanfare for the Common Man, which was opening the festival. The Bernstein Festival lasted about two weeks. There was this commotion at the back of the Barbican, and flashbulbs going off, and uh, I turned around, and in entered this extraordinary man with this shock of silver hair, um, deeply tanned, um, with a cigarette in his hand. I mean, who else gets to smoke in the Barbican? <laughs> uh, with a cigarette in his hand, um, a guy standing behind him with a towel and an ashtray, um, the coat over the shoulders, the white silk scarf, you know, the whole yeah. Hollywood image, and TV cameras and all the rest of it. And anyway, he walked down the stairs, and came up on, I, the orchestra gave him a huge welcome. I was, my knees were um, like removed from my body and were just, I don't know, they were playing Woody the Woodpecker or something. And up came Bernstein to the podium and shook my hand. And he was, I was surprised to find that he was actually quite short. He was um, maybe five, four, five, five, something like that. I'm about, uh, I would stand about five, nine and a half. So I, um, uh, I shook hands with him, and of course, I was completely fanboy. I didn't really know, although I didn't know the word fanboy then, but that's exactly <laughs> the kind of state that I was in. Yeah. And uh, he said to me, um, well, I've done this before, uh, as you may know. And of course, he made a famous debut with the New York Philharmonic and when Bruno Walter went ill during the war. He said, um, I'm here for you, and I hear it's going to go very well. And he was fantastic. He was incredibly supportive. There's footage... If you go Bernstein Tovey on Facebook, on uh, YouTube, 
Mm. There's footage up there of the rehearsal of me conducting prelude, fugue, and riffs, and him standing behind, beside me. Um, mm. He was um, uh, sort of masterclassing me in one particular section. Um, the program was um, Fanfare for the Common Man, uh, Rafstein Blue with John Ogden, Halil, it was the British premiere of Halil, the great work he wrote for flute, string orchestra, and percussion, uh, one of his best pieces. Um, the symphonic um, suite from On the Waterfront, Oh, yeah. Brando film. Um, uh, and then um, the complete Firebird suite of 1919. Anyway, it just, it just seemed like an endless program. And everyone had assumed that I knew the Firebird and that I'd conducted it. Well, I'd heard it, but I'd never, I have to confess, I'd never cracked open the score. So when people said to me, oh, of course, you know this piece, I'm doing that young conductor thing of going around going, oh, absolutely, of course, you know. And um, <laughs> yeah. of course, it was total BS. Um, and I mean, I've had plenty of young conductors do that to me. So I, so I you know, it's just part and parcel of being a young conductor. And I went, um, I went on, it was, uh, the concert was packed. Um, he was incredibly gracious. Um, on the Monday night after the Snow Queen premiere in Birmingham, I'd had supper with Princess Margaret, who attended the gala first performance. Tuesday night, I had supper at the, or at the reception with um, Leonard Bernstein and uh, all, the, all the worthies who came along on that occasion. And uh, on Wednesday night, I went back to Birmingham and had fish and chips in the car. So I came down <laughs> with, with, a bit of, with a bit of a crash. <laughs> and you know, I kind of, I, it, was a great, it was a great experience and it really launched my career. I mean, it really, really did. It got me um, uh, concert opportunities in North America and all around Britain. And um, when the Bernstein Centenary came around, the New York Philharmonic asked me if I would conduct the um, broadcast, the uh, uh, live from Lincoln Center broadcast on New Year's Eve into his centenary. And um, I, had, I did an interview about this experience and um, PBS in America found the footage, which is um, what you see up on YouTube, some of what you see on YouTube. And I was interviewed about um, Bernstein and uh, I did quite a few um, uh, Bernstein commemoration concerts during that year. There are lots of stories about him, but, and, and about his unkindness to people as well, because he could be a very difficult man. He was, in the evenings of those days that I knew him, he was often drunk and or, or whatever, but out of it. And I, you know, he's, he was so articulate, such an extraordinary speaker um, that he, he was really America's um, spokesperson for the arts during, during those years. And yeah, it's true. Yeah, he, yeah. He, um, he, 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 he could sometimes turn on people, but for me, he was unbelievable. And he invited me to Tanglewood and um, I went to Tanglewood and then later in my career, I've, I've become a regular sort of thing at Tanglewood, done lots and lots of different things there. But I mean, back in 1986, when he invited me, I had no idea what it was. I thought it was a shed in the boonies. Um, <laughs> I really didn't know. So it was a, it was a life changing experience. You've been music director in Winnipeg and also a music director in Vancouver, artistic director of Calgary Opera, but also worked with the New York Film in the summertime and the LA Phil, principal guest at the Hollywood Bowl, but also being a Brit and working now, you're principal conductor of the BBC Concert Orchestra. Do you have a different sort of attitude or way of talking and working 
one side of the Atlantic that differs to the other because of the people you're working with? And also, are the orchestras different in their attitude and, and way that they work with you? Orchestras um, everywhere have this, um, have their own personalities. They have their mm. own, as you know, they have their own distinct personalities. Like for example, the CBSO with Simon was so different to the CBSO that was with Louis Fremo, which mm. I actually played with when I was um, back in my tuba playing days. You know, I think what orchestra musicians crave is authenticity on the podium. Yeah. Um, they crave people to be natural and they crave people to have um, natural musicianship and natural authority. If you have those two things, then um, really the sky is the limit for what you do. Mm. Um, I would say that I, I was incredibly shy growing up. I know now it seems a lot because I, I sort of came out of it um, quite spectacularly in the end, but I was incredibly shy. And when I started my conducting career, I was very, I was always incredibly nervous. I was consumed by nerves. I used to say I wasn't, but I was, I had a real um, nerve problems. And part of it was being a boy from the East End. And I mean, my natural speaking voice, I had to jettison because back in those days, if you had the slightest London burr on your voice, there was a, a certain snootiness uh, towards you. Most of my contemporaries or the people who came, my the peers who came before me were, uh, you know, nicely public, public school educated. I was just a grammar school boy from the Orford, Essex, you know, dropped the odd H. And so I found I just had to smooth that out. It was quite important to do that. And um, I think it took me a while to become authentic in that way. Um, in America and in Canada, when I moved to um, Canada, I was 35 years old to take over the Winnipeg Symphony, which is a fabulous orchestra, um, occupied a role in Canadian music life, a little bit like the CBSO, um, mm. small enough and flexible enough and provincial enough to do things that the London bands couldn't really do, or that the, in my case, the Toronto and Montreal bands weren't really able to do. Anyway, I, um, I loved working there. And um, while I was there, living there, I got used to one thing about North America, which I thought was wonderful, and that was the uh, meritocratic society. Um, of course, there are many, many people, um, particularly I would say in, in America, who do not have equality of opportunity. Um, but in, 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 uh, we, we, we know that. I mean, there's a whole strata of society in America that is um, outrageously uh, defamed and ignored and treated badly by authority. We know that already. I'm not even gonna, I mean, everybody knows um, what I'm referring to. Mm. But in, in Canada, which was a more um, egalitarian society, um, there were issues, for example, the way the indigenous First Nation population has been treated historically and uh, the way children were taken to residential schools to, as the government said, knock the Indian out of them. I mean, just extraordinary <laughs> attitude, yeah. which, wow. uh, which now has fostered a huge reconciliation movement. But apart, apart, aside from that, um, Canada was full of refugees, wartime refugees, people from Eastern Europe who migrated to Canada because they couldn't get in the States, they didn't want to stay in Europe, and they couldn't get into England. So they came to Canada, and Canada welcomed these people with open arms and they brought with them a habit of concert going and a habit of um, this meritocratic society and 
I completely flourished in that environment. And um, from there, I went on to, um, to Vancouver and became music director there in the year 2000. And while I was in Vancouver, there was one orchestra you didn't mention that I was music director of, which is uh, Orchestra uh, Philharmonic de Luxembourg. And I was music director there for five years in the early uh, years of the, um, of the century. And uh, so I was working a lot in Europe. I was working a lot in America. And I was very happy. I had three kids, so I was preoccupied with uh, how they were doing. And um, I, I think I was really, I, I, when I went to Winnipeg, I started coming out of that um, shell that I'd felt in London. Mm. And uh, I think, I, I, anyway, I became more authentic. And I became more authentic in Winnipeg and then in Vancouver and going to New York and all these other places. So that when I started to come back um, in earnest, to the UK orchestras, I was a more authentic and more rounded person, a more rounded. I mean, we didn't all have the precociousness and talent of a Simon Rattle, but I was, a, I was certainly more, much more mature when I came back uh, to the UK and started mm. working with orchestras um, in the UK much more. Um, do, am I different with them? No, I don't think so. I mean, I have, one thing I have to be really careful about is that if I start talking about um, crotchets and quavers in <laughs> New York, um, I get groaned at. Yes. If, I talk, if I talk about eighth notes and sixteenths in London, it, people just think I'm being a sued. Uh, because, <laughs> you know, so, so I have to be really careful to use the right terms. Oddly enough, that's one thing I'm, I try really hard about. But, you know, um, the BBC Concert Orchestra is an absolutely fantastic orchestra. It's very um, incredibly keen. They do everything from the most complex contemporary scores uh, to um, to show music, and mm. I do I do their uh, I do a lot of the contemporary uh, music that they perform, but I also do a lot of the, the traditional classical repertoire that they perform. And they have a lot of rehearsals for every concert. So for a, a South Bank concert, we would have uh, probably four three-hour rehearsals, um, which is unheard of uh, for a London orchestra. Mm, and that's true. Um, and they, they and I really need to be on my metal because the orchestra love rehearsing. And actually, that's the one thing about North American orchestras. They hate being sent home early unless there really is nothing to do because they really love to rehearse. They take things very seriously indeed. They're tenured. Their orchestras are very financially secure, whatever you might read about them. Mm. And they're backed up, most of them, by huge endowments. And... I mean, if I go to Chicago, which I do every year almost now, it's an incredible orchestra, an extraordinary orchestra. And when you're in rehearsal, you can hear a pin drop. Nobody says a word. Their discipline is extraordinary. And uh, I know they're listening because if I slip in a funny line, they laugh at it. <laughs> so, uh, and, and as a conductor, I did Enigma with them last year, just before I became ill. And um, it was just... Uh, just even to, you know, the first bar of Enigma, as you know, um, that chord that goes down before the theme begins, mm. to get the right sound, the right beginning to that chord and, and to produce the same unified attack is very difficult because lots of orchestras are a little flabby on that. Some people front end of the note too firmly, some are too late behind the beat. And I talked about my personal theory about that note with them. They totally got what I wanted, and um, they applied that across the whole piece. 
and they, we had the leisure to do that. I know um, I did some performances of Enigma with the Royal Phil um, about uh, probably about 10 years ago now, and they were fantastic. I mean, well, it's a great, great orchestra. And I had um, five rehearsals. And I thought, this, my agent said, there's five rehearsals. And I thought, oh, this is unheard of. Then it transpired. Yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've got three hours the first day. And then the second day, before the second concert, I've got three hours before that. And I've got three hours before the third concert. You know how it goes. So it wasn't yeah, five yeah. rehearsals at all. And of course, they really didn't want to rehearse. And I don't blame them, neither did I, once we'd done, once we'd done um, the first show. Uh, but um, it's a, it's, by the time I felt, by the time we got to the last performance, there was no difference between um, the, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and the Great Orchestras of America. Um, what, but what I think is different is uh, the leisure to be able to build a performance, not in an over-pedantic way, but in an organic way. Um, and of course, in America, um, they, they play concerts three or four times in the same hall, uh, whereas uh, there are very few orchestras in Britain that do that. Um, CBSO is one of them, but it's, it's, it's a luxury uh, to, mm. to be able to do that. You mentioned Luxembourg, and I was going to mention it in my next question, but since you've already mentioned it, I worked out that at one point you would have been probably working in with the New York Phil in the summer and music director in Vancouver at the same time as being music director in Luxembourg. Every conductor I've talked about talks about the travelling. How did you cope with the travelling when you were doing that triangle of cities across the, the Atlantic and back? Um. When I got the job in Luxembourg, um, I'd gone in to do a cancellation. Um, Ted Downs was ill and unable to go. And uh, I was 49 and they offered me the position on the strength of the cancellation mm. and incredible resources they had. And I opened the hall in Luxembourg that everybody enjoys visiting now. Mm, it's a lovely hall. Uh, yeah. So I did the, um, we commissioned Penderesque's Eighth Symphony for that. I, I had a wonderful, wonderful time there. Well, I think... Uh, yes, you're right. That's exactly what I was doing. And I was not doing just 10 weeks in Vancouver. I was doing 18 weeks and my contract in Vancouver required me to live there. Mm. Great hardship not living <laughs> in Vancouver. It's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And I'm still, I mean, I'm speaking to you from Vancouver right now. I still live here at the moment. Mm. And um, New York, my work in New York had really started to take off. I'd been doing, um, I started with an education concert. And then I moved from there, one of their famous young people's concerts rather, and I moved from there to doing subscription concerts. And um, it just came at a time in my life where um, I just clicked with the orchestra. I still love going in there. And um, last year I had to cancel because I had cancer. And this year they had to cancel because of all this. Mm. Um, but it's one of my special engagements. And in the course of 20 years, I've done 150 odd concerts with them. So. It's been a very, very special relationship for me. Mm. Um, when it took off in 2002, and I was also doing Luxembourg and Vancouver, the traveling was horrendous. It was, yeah. mm. I would arrive and there was no direct flight to Luxembourg. I would have to go through London or Frankfurt. And um, the, it, was, it was very difficult. I was also trying to get to see my elderly mother who was living in Bexhill on the South Coast. I was trying to do all these, fulfill these obligations and be a good dad because my two girls were like, just uh, two and four years old at that point. My son was, um, was about 15. He was at school in London. 
so I was, uh, it was really, really difficult. I remember some days in Luxembourg, I would arrive, um, the orchestra car would pick me up in Frankfurt and then do the two hour drive from Frankfurt to Luxembourg. I would get out of the car in Luxembourg and I would walk into the rehearsal at 9.30 and I would have to conduct some horrendous thing, really difficult. And the orchestra, again, loved to rehearse. And rehearsals were long. They were four and five hours with 20 minute break, 20 minute break, half a break. So it was very little time to recover. And it was murder. It was really, really murder. Um, and then going to New York was always, I mean, it's New York, you know, the pace of life there is brutal. Mm. And um, so I, I kept it up. And then I got offered, while I was in Luxembourg and doing that in New York, I got offered the principal guest conductorship of the LA Phil at the Hollywood Bowl. And that meant that my summer months, which were often rest and recuperation. <laughs> yeah, um, and now they've gone as well. <laughs> now they've gone as well. Yeah. And so we talked about it as a family and um, I decided that uh, I really couldn't keep uh, Luxembourg and Vancouver going. One of them had to go. Mm. And my, my kids by then were at school uh, in Vancouver. They were in a, a bilingual school, so they both grew up speaking English and French. And um, of course, that was great in Luxembourg. Uh, uh, but it just seemed that um, uh, it was just, I just, anyway, after that, I was pretty busy as well. So um, I sadly um, uh, declined the offer of an extension in Luxembourg, and, but I took on the LA Phil position instead. So, you know, flying is, um, it's pretty gross, as you know. Mm, um, it takes it out you, of you. Yeah, unless you can walk on the plane and turn left. Yeah, absolutely. Go and lie down. Then it makes, I mean, that really does make uh, a huge difference. Once I was getting on, I was getting on a plane in um, New Jersey and I was going to the summer home, Saratoga of the Philadelphia Orchestra to do a concert. Mm. And I bumped into a conductor called Andrew Grams, who was an assistant conductor in those days at the Cleveland Orchestra. I'd met him in Mm. Cleveland when he assisted me. I was sitting in my seat on the plane and Andrew came on and said, Maestro Tovi, uh, how lovely to see you. And suddenly this man <laughs> sitting next to me stood up uh, across the aisle and said, Maestro Tovi, and it was Pavo Yavi. We'd never met. <laughs> so all of a sudden there were three conductors blabbing away at each other. And then the luggage was forever arriving at the other end. And, and we yeah. all stood, so we all stood around chatting for a while. But, See, you know, there's that cliche, isn't there, that the conductors only ever meet each other at airports or in motorway service stations in between gigs. I suppose that, that that's sort of living proof that it does actually happen. It is. That's. I mean, sometimes that's a good thing, though, because not every conductor has a personality that's as attractive as their publicity. <laughs> that's true. Oh, did I really say that? I'm sorry. <laughs> I had the great fortune, and I do mean this because I loved your piece, of conducting a piece of yours called Urban Runway, which was a co-commission between the New York Phil and the LA Phil at the Hollywood Bowl. When do you find time to compose when you're not on airplanes or meeting conductors in airports? Um, I mean, you've written concerti, you've written uh, small pieces like Urban Runway, written pieces for brass band, a full-length opera. And when do you find time to compose? And also another question, when you conduct your own music, do you find that easy? Uh, for want of a question. <laughs> well, the answer to that is, is, is definitely not. And I'll tell you why in a second. But when do I find time to compose? Um, I've, I've been very lucky. I've been blessed all my life with um, 
the, the desire to get up early. Mm. And many days, even when I have like a double rehearsal day, I'm up at five or six. I've just always had that uh, ability. And um, that's, I find that an hour of study between six and seven takes three hours if you leave it till the afternoon of the same day. Um, mm. The mind races, the mind is very creative. And so most of the actual act of creativity and the compositional process comes in that same time period between about five and midday for me. Mm. And um, then there's the whole act of putting it together, orchestration and so on and so forth. Um, until about five years ago, I always wrote my scores out by hand. Mm. Um, transposed everything myself and did all that. I had a brilliant, brilliant copyist um, in Winnipeg called Clayton Halverson, who's, a, who's an absolute genius. And then I started using Sibelius um, and I found it very useful on plane trips because you could sit there and you, it was hard to get your manuscript paper out on a plane trip, but you know, I, orchestrating on a plane trip is easy. Mm. Um, I mean, you can use the keyboard and just, I've got very fluent at it now and just, um, just fly through it. It's early in the morning and I found uh, that I would work at a great pace. Mm. And then about three years ago, um, I had a piece, actually in uh, the summer of 19, uh, 2018, for slip, in the summer of 2018, I had the premiere of a big set of piano variations for piano and orchestra. And I found that I was finding it harder and harder to compose. And um, not that the ideas were flowing, but the physical act of getting it down and dealing with it all. And I was, I was a bit overwhelmed. One of my kids was very ill at that point um, and is now uh, fully recovered, I'm happy to say. But it was a very difficult time personally. And anyway, I, 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 this inability to get, to get it done um, became very serious um, about a year and a bit ago. And then I found out uh, that I had cancer. Mm. And, you know, we were able to trace it back and I could, um, by the way, I was finding certain things, concentrating, I was finding very difficult. Um, and my strength was ebbing and had really ebbed away. Now, this lockdown um, right now, which is so awful for everybody and so mm. awful for those artists and musicians who are in the gig economy, is actually um, a gift to me because I've had, I had a commission to write a violin concerto for Jane Zenners um, from the National Arts Centre Orchestra in Ottawa. And um, I was too ill to finish it last year, but during this lockdown, I'm finishing that piece. Um, I had a concerto or orchestra commission for the Vancouver Symphony, and I was too ill to finish that, but I can finish that in the lockdown. So really I've been grabbing time my whole life to do this. And, um, there was one very funny thing that happened. I was doing, um, writing a concerto for Canadian brass to play with orchestra, which we were doing in Vancouver and then Canadian brass were taking it all over the place. They've played it a lot now. And I hit on this idea in Luxembourg where I was writing it, that I would, um, in between rehearsals, that I would have the orchestra play in E major and the brass play in the natural B flat. Mm. <laughs> and um, anyway, it was, it's a very cool passage. You, and you talked about traveling just now. So I wrote this, I sketched this variation out and I was really under the gun for a deadline. And I came back to Vancouver. I was jet lagged out of my mind. Um, I knew I had to work even though I was really tired. So I pulled the manuscript out of the case, sat down at my desk and I saw 
Um, and I'm a person who writes um, polytonally, so you know, it's, a lot of things are atonal. I don't have to worry about key signatures and all that sort of thing. Mm. But I looked at the score and I saw what I'd done and I had entirely forgotten the concept of what I was trying to write. I hadn't, I was, I just started scoring. I hadn't written any notes or anything like that. And I stared terrified at the page and thought, oh my God, I've lost it. I've had some kind of enormous brain fart. What's going on? And as I looked at the, as I looked at the copy, um, after about, I don't know, it seemed like an age. It was probably five minutes, 10 minutes, but it felt like hours. It, it came back to me, actually, this is what you intended mm. and um i was so relieved because i just didn't remember so you know that's how that's one of the tricks flying can play on you and also when you compose in bits mm. uh you know that doesn't help but basically just grab a bit of time and um i, I because i'm a jazz musician as well as everything else um improvising is um uh, musically is something that i can do so uh, I fall back sometimes on a kind of paper improvisation um, if I'm wanting to fill gaps in the score and I often go back afterwards and then rewrite those passages uh, and the improvisation provides a kind of framework for what's needed. So I try and use everything that I've got. Now, the other thing, you, the other question you asked me was when I conduct my compositions. Yes. Um, and you know what? I am the worst conductor of them, I often feel, because I look at them and I'm looking at the orchestration and I'm looking at them vertically and I'm thinking, oh, what a clever color to put the violas with the bassoons <laughs> or, or what a great idea that was. You know, I'm having all these ideas and meantime, um, I'm getting slower and slower. But mm. somebody else like you, your performance of Urban Runway with the BBC Concert Orchestra, I've played Urban Runway with the orchestras who commissioned it and with um, most of the major American orchestras and elsewhere. And uh, your, the best performance, the best conducted performance, and the best all-round performance was the BBC Concert Orchestra, uh, which you did for me when I was ill last year when you stood in for me. So um, uh, this is embarrassing. No, how no kind. One this. <laughs> yeah, uh, how kind. <laughs> and, and yet, and I'm leaving that bit in. The minute I got the score, I opened it and thought, oh, this is great. I loved it immediately, and and the my, probably my favourite bit actually is the is the violas in the middle. Um, the the there's a sort of the 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 hip, is it the hippies in the middle? The sort of well, uh, I'm really I'm really really close friends with the principal viola players in um, both LA and in New York. I mean, we, mm. we're we're kind of very close, and I just wanted to. Um, it's the height of viola jokes. If, if that doesn't sound like an oxymoron. Um, at that particular time, and uh, I just wanted to write a viola joke. So yeah. the piece is based around the, um, as you know, the kind of that kind of special gate that fashionistas seem to have when they don something with a fancy name like Boss or Gabeshi yeah. or whoever it happens to be. 
Um, and uh, when I um, wrote this, I thought, well, we need to have the sandals with socks brigade <laughs> represented. And so I, I wrote this extended passage, as you know, for the violas, but I'm glad you liked it. I'm assuming, because you are such a great pianist, that when you come to learn a new score, that the first thing you would do is go to the piano and, and look at it that way. Would I be right or would I be wrong? And when you learn a new score, are you a are you a scribbler in your scores or do you try and keep them clean? Oh, no, I write all over them, all over them. If an idea occurs to me, I fling it down on paper. And the score is supposed to be in your head. And the act of writing all over the score, I find, gets it into your head. Yeah. Um, and also ideas occur to me while I'm sitting reading them. Why would I want to keep my score clean? I can go to a library and see a clean score. Um, I have a massive collection and um, everything is scored in uh, red or blue pencil. And mm. some people get very um, retentive about how they use the red and how they use the blue. I don't, I just pick up a pencil and some, sometimes I can write the same thing in blue on the next page and read, simply because that's all that's nearby. Mm. Um, I, I learned some scores at the piano. Um, if there's a particularly complex um, new work and um, I want to really have a sense of relationship to the, to the pitches and a sense of uh, how the piece is grounded, I would take that to the piano for sure. Mm. Um, if I'm, and if it's something I'm learning that, I mean, I've all the, you know, the major symphonies and everything I did for the first time two or three decades ago. So I don't, I mean, I no longer approach um, Brahms symphonies in that way, for example. No. Um, but I do use the piano and being a repetiteur, um, you know, you learn how to fit the orchestral score to your fingers. Mm. And the secret is playing only half the notes. But <laughs> um, I do use that, yeah. Mm. But actually what I tend to do, Adrian Bolt, who I met and had a couple of lessons with, and actually I conducted his last performance in London, he did the first ballet, the Sanguine Fan, at the Coliseum, and I conducted the rest of the program. So I knew him a little bit. And he had this, um, he had this theory that when you get a new score, the first thing you should do is turn through it quickly, mm. not slowly, but quickly, and get a sense of the architecture, what the shape is, and to see what leaps off the page at you. And that's really um, very, very good advice. Sometimes if I was doing, for example, in Winnipeg, where we had a new music festival, which I started, um, we would have people like John Coriolano come up for his Symphony Number no. 1, uh, which had been premiered in Chicago. And so therefore, because he was coming up and I was conducting this piece and I didn't know him and I knew he had got a Grammy for the recording, I would make sure I was familiar with the recording. Mm. But the difficulty with recordings is that, as John shared with me, how that recording was um, edited and put together and uh, I'm, I forbear from sharing it with you but <laughs> let's just say it wasn't a straight playthrough job mm. um, but uh, when uh, you know when you listen to recordings he's getting trapped in the recording um, I do not belong and this is probably my mistake I do not belong to the movement that says you need to work out your gestures in advance but I do belong to the movement that believes you should know if this is in two or four or three Mm. Um, yeah, yeah. I, for example, there are some conductors you watch them in rehearsal, 
and then you watch them conduct the same passage in performance that it has exactly the same choreography. Mm. I, I could never keep all that straight. I, I wouldn't, I would get, I'm just not that organized. So for I'm, me, it's a, it's a very in the moment. I'm the same as you. And also that if you do your dance moves, your choreography, uh, you might not be helping the orchestra that at that moment might have suffered a mini wobble that you actually then they need you to conduct and help them if you're doing only doing prescribed or uh, moves don't you agree that i do they, i do agree totally yeah you should be conducting what you're hearing there live in the moment not necessarily what you're hearing in your head um, well that's true and if you yeah. give a grand gesture to a trumpet player who's just cacked a note yeah, um, yeah, yeah, and exactly. they pack another one. I mean, you, and you just look a right, uh, mm. right Charlie. I mm. think um, one of the things that I found in my career too is that I was, especially in the first 20, 30 years, I was conducting way too much repertoire. Now, one of, the, one of the great things about getting beyond that tipping point when you go into the older part of the, uh, the older, the old, one of the older people on stage, um, mm. I can pick and choose now um, what I do and the BBC I can have plenty of time to rehearse and prepare. Mm. So it's, um, I mean, although I do go in and do the odd cancellation, I still enjoy the technical challenge. Um, most of my life now, um, I'm able to prepare really, really thoroughly. And I know that earlier in my career, I really did not. I relied on my skills as a piano sight reader. And, um, uh, you know, that's not authentic. So, uh, yeah, I do use the piano, um, but I would also use any resource. Sometimes when I'm, um, the one thing I don't use oddly enough is Sibelius. So I never take, there are conductors, I was, there was some discussion of this on Facebook this week. Um, I never take somebody else's score and enter it on Facebook to hear the MIDI back. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've, I'd rather go out and plant a few roses in the garden uh, <laughs> yeah. than do yeah. that. Yeah. It would be much more useful as well. <laughs> but um, I, I, I enjoy reading the score in the armchair. I enjoy reading it off the deck. And also, I have a study in my house. I've just moved from it, actually, and I'm, I'm just between houses at the moment. But I would, although I would work in my music room, and I'd have two or three stations in that music room, at the piano, at the desk, at the computer desk, I also am trying to train myself to, to do it anywhere. So at the mm. kitchen table, you know, in the, in the airport lounge, um, or uh, a railway station. I think any way you can get out the score and just read it and just work at it is very, very useful. So uh, on board, I always take my uh, scores on board and my little pencil case, which is a bit dinky, and, um, and do my thing. And then, you know, you get a stewardesses, those dumb questions you get to, oh, are you a musician? And you say, <laughs> yeah, yes, I'm a, I'm a conductor actually. Oh, how wonderful. Does the orchestra take any notice of you? <laughs> you know, you get, and you get these questions. Anyway, <laughs> I, I feel better for sharing that one. So, uh, Bramwell, it is 10 question time. And, and as ever, we start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the sound of acoustical musical instruments, natural wood resonating like a violin, mm. reeds resonating like an oboe, brass resonating um, like a trumpet. Um, I abhor, um, as a composer, I abhor electronic instruments, um, although I admire enormously much of the artistry that goes into 
them. And so mm. but I find the thing that I most loathe is the sound of uh, people who, in the park, will play their music uh, on a, a loud box and ruin your own tranquility where they should have their own headphones in. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> I've got at the moment. <laughs> well, the, the point is that you, you don't have a choice at the moment. We're all sitting here not having a completely blank canvas of where you'd like to go, what you'd like to do. Um, okay, well, I can tell you what I, on an, what would I do on an ideal day. Mm. Um, I'd like to uh, I'd like to wake up in St John's Wood. Mm. I'd like to go and see some cricket at Lords. Oh. I'd like to drive with some friends through the countryside through my old stomping grounds in Essex and Suffolk, stopping at hostelries for lunch and getting to Aldborough in Suffolk in time for dinner at the Wentworth Hotel and so that I could wake up at the end of my 24 hours um, overlooking Aldborough Beach. That's a superb answer. Um, it really is, because I think I could easily... If you, I mean, other than the, the going to bed at either end of the day, <laughs> uh, I could easily uh, join you for all of that. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? I feel this should be like uh, Desert Island Discs and you're not allowed to choose Carlos Kleiber. Um, uh, but um, I met Kleiber's friend and biographer, um, Charles Barber, here in Vancouver. Oh, yes. And Charles, Charles wrote the book about corresponding with Kleiber. Wonderful and book. I, um, Charles has become one of my closest friends here. Um, my timpanist, Bonnie Adelson in Luxembourg, uh, had played on a television broadcast with the Luxembourg Radio Orchestra, which was the precursor of the Philharmonic. And Cliver had been watching from somewhere in Germany and wrote to her. And she and Cliver set up a correspondence. She shared this correspondence with me. I shared it with Charles. Um, her correspondence, I believe, is now mentioned in Charles's book. Um, and something about Kleiber's career um, resonated uh, with my own because he was involved with ballet early on before moving into opera, like I did. And then, of course, conducting only what he, he can only ever conduct about 500 concerts, um, which is not my story, but uh, it has to be Kleiber, I think. I've, I've been an enormous admirer of um, Colin Davis, so I just felt had an organic way about him. I know orchestras sometimes found him unclear and everything, but there was something about the architecture and direction of the piece. I played for him a couple of times, and I met him in New York. We shared a week in New York together once. Absolute gentleman. Um, I was very, very fond of him. But um, my favorite conductor uh, could equally be um, my old music master at school, who had a way with choirs in the organ loft that was just exceptional. Uh, there are, there's great conducting going on everywhere, mm. not, just, not just in the uh, publicity feeds of the top pros. Mm. Well, therefore, who would be a favorite current conductor? Oh, now, a favorite um, current conductor. I'm, I, I, uh, when I made my debut, my subscription debut downtown with the Chicago Symphony, I um, started on a Tuesday morning, I think it was. And the night before, there was a concert with uh, Riccardo Muti conducting Schumann IV. Mm. Um, I had actually not seen Muti live since he was a young man at the Philharmonia. 
um, and uh, the manager of the Chicago Symphony used to be the manager of Vancouver. So uh, Jeff took me backstage to meet Muti afterwards and Jeff Alexander. I loved what Muti did and achieved with that orchestra. Mm. He was hardly moving and when he did move, the earth shook and the orchestra were with him every step of the way. Um, he would be unorthodox. He had the score there. He didn't really, he wasn't worried about optics, except maybe the hair, but he wasn't worried <laughs> about optics, uh, you know, from memory or anything like that. And the music making was exalted on one of the highest levels I've ever seen. I felt so privileged to be able to go in the next day to, to conduct. And um, I met Booty and uh, he was very gracious. He knew I was, had worked with Jeff in Vancouver, we, we spoke for a few minutes. And um, the funny thing was, I, um, when I was talking to him, I, I went quite quiet for a minute. And you know, the way that's sort a of gangly way that you can say mm. the dumbest things. <laughs> so I said to him, I said to him, um, oh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this week. It's my, because I've conducted a Ravinia before. I said, this is my downtown debut and subscription with the concert. Mooty looked at me as if I was an idiot and said, I know. I'm the music director. <laughs> so, but I would actually say that right now on the planet, the combination of Muti and the Chicago Symphony is, is really uh, breathtaking. And he won't come to London because the critics gave him a mauling last time he was there. So he just said, forget it, we're not going to London. Hmm. They go to Vienna, Paris, Salzburg. Mind you, they're not going anywhere right now. No. So, uh, yeah. Well, he has that in common with Clybert, doesn't he? Because he never came back to London after he had a mauling from the London critics. Um, uh, that was true. I remember uh, Clive Gillinson telling me a story though that um, that, that Clyber was all set to come back, come to the LSO in the last year or so of his life, and then Clyber told uh, Ask Gillinson what because he negotiated his own concerts. He said, uh, um, "What's the fee?" And uh, Clive said, "Well, this is what we pay." This is our mm. maximum that we pay. And Clive, I just laughed and put the phone down. So <laughs> there, might have been, uh, there might have been other reasons for that. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Um, I, I think also about the most, one of the most embarrassing things that ever happened to me. Uh, I've always found stuff like the Red of Spring, um, you know, Bartok's second violin concerto, uh, very hard to conduct, but I've always found that naturally fits the kind of musician I am. So I've never had a problem with those pieces. Mm. Uh, contemporary works and everything, I've done all that stuff to death. So all the choreography that is necessary to get through that stuff, um, mm. I seem to be able to somehow manage. Um, uh, but the worst thing I ever had was underestimating Beethoven Pastoral Symphony. Mm. And the, the second or third time I have ever that I conducted it, I'd done a concert just after the Bernstein experience we spoke about earlier at the Edinburgh Festival. And I'd had supper with uh, Stanislav Skorbachevsky and um, Cleo Lane and Johnny Dankworth and Sean Connery was there, believe it or not, and a, a whole bunch of other people. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, this is fantastic. I've arrived and how wonderful this all is. And I was, all I was was a dumb, stupid 32-year-old. Uh, I got on the plane, the crack of door, to go and do a one rehearsal concert with the RPO. It's amazing they ever asked me back, actually. A one rehearsal concert with the RPO, which included the Pastoral Symphony. And I look, I'd looked at the score, I knew the music, and I was awful. Um, I just didn't understand the level of which the RPO 
expected this music to speak. I just, mm. I was completely lost. And I mean, nowadays I do the pastoral uh, often. I'm often asked for it and I love doing it. And I hope I have, I have acquired that understanding. But that was the, uh, that piece scared me to death for a number of years. And it was only when I think about um, the mid nineties, I did a complete cycle of Beethoven symphonies in Winnipeg and finally laid it to rest mm. that terrible memory. So uh, there you are. I told you this was like therapy, this session. <laughs> are you lying down? Are you lying comfortably? <laughs> when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, having left just about everything at home at one time or another, I think the answer is I've, I'm now prepared to leave uh, everything at home. Um, I, if I didn't even pack, uh, you know, when you pack every week, you get, unless you have a system and unless you're organized, it inevitably happens that you leave things behind. Mm. So I'm pretty, I, a long time ago, I decided that I would not be too nervous. But I think the thing, probably the one thing is very boring that I do like to have my personal batons. Mm. So the one thing I take care of is I put batons in my main case and I have batons in my uh, take on board case because if I lost the batons, I mean, I, can, I often cannot take away, not often, but sometimes without a baton, mm. um, then um, uh, I can cover that eventuality. You got time for a story? Yeah, go for it, yeah. So years and years ago, I went through this period of saying, I'm not going to use a baton anymore. I don't like being beholden to a baton. Mm. And I was conducting the Brahms variations on a theme of Haydn. And, you know, my hand was scooping. Uh, I curved my hand and I turned it in a circle in front of my face. Then my left hand and I cupped my hands. I ran my fingers through the air. I played the orchestra like a piano, you know, the whole mm. BS, BS thing that conductors do. And um, uh, anyway, afterwards I was taken to a reception and I was introduced to this very elderly man um, who was over 90, I think, as I remember him. And he was from Yorkshire. And uh, anyway, um, I was introduced to him. Somebody said, oh, this is uh, uh, Bramble Toby who was conducting. And this Yorkshireman said to me, oh, you don't use a baton then, lad? And I said, um, no, I don't. He said, why is that? I said, well, I feel like, and then, you know, and, um, simulating the gestures of while I was talking, I said to him, well, I feel it gets me in greater touch with the music. I feel that like I'm touching the wishes of the, of the orchestra and the score, and I'm, and I'm communicating that without any kind of barrier between um, my soul and, um, and the orchestra. And he said to me, well, let me tell you this, young man, judging by your hand gestures, if ever you give up conducting, you can make a marvelous midwife. <laughs> so after <laughs> after that, um, after that, I decided I would go back to using a baton. So <laughs> it's it's a punchline I, c I couldn't see coming. That was a brilliant one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, all the best gags are the ones where you can't see the punchline coming. I know. Well, I didn't see it coming while I was talking to it. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't. <laughs> uh, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I don't think there's actually anything I would change about being a conductor at the age I'm at. I'm in my mid sixties. Um, I finally worked out how to do it. I feel I'm getting somewhere. Um, I have great relations with the orchestras that I conduct. I really enjoy the work that I do. 
Um, I've had the most incredible time, 18 years with my orchestra in Vancouver, and I'm still going back regularly as uh, the, the title, uh, emeritus title or something. Uh, and I love all of that. Um, I think the one thing that I would want to change about the profession is that I think way too few music directors live in the cities of their orchestra. Mm. So, you know, they, they're happy to shout uh, and to be cheerleaders for their cities from elsewhere. And I understand why that happens. It's very hard, you know, people, um, partners have connections and that, why should they have to uproot just because uh, you've got a job? Um, but I, I believed very strongly in that model. I thought it was great, for example, that Simon had that lovely house in Birmingham and that he was, really was in Birmingham when he was mm. music director, even though he was going all over the world. Um, and um, I thought it was, uh, important when I went to Winnipeg to live in Winnipeg I was able to have this because property prices are so low there I was able to live like a king um, in Vancouver when I moved to Vancouver um, I had less square footage at four times the price um, but I did enjoy living in Vancouver um, immensely I had a place in Luxembourg I had my own flat in Luxembourg and um, I used to love going there in the old town um, I wasn't living there all the time but I was actually in a kind of residence there. I wish, um, I think that's uh, a mistake. And uh, for example, I'm the artistic advisor in Rhode Island. I love this orchestra. I love the city of Providence. It's the smallest state in the union. And um, they've asked me to be music director, but I feel it would be wrong until I could actually have a home there. Mm. I've not been able to do that, but. Um, even though the job I do is is the music director job. So I, I'm just called artistic advisor out of my own choice. Um, so that's the one thing I'd change about the business. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? And now, none. Uh, but back then, uh, I think um, uh, the school that I was at uh, produced pillars of society. They became doctors, lawyers, chartered accountants. You know, you just name all those kinds of professions. Uh, two of my closest friends at that time became, one became professor of history at uh, Bristol University, Ronald Hutton. Another um, friend, David Pearl, he became um, an employment law judge in London. And these are the two people that I'm most, well, I haven't seen Ron for ages actually, but David is one of my closest friends. And um, so I, when, I, when I was offered um, a professorship at, um, Boston University, I thought I would actually always thought I'd like to be a university mm. professor. And I loved the teaching. I loved the teaching. My daughter came to Boston to be a student. Everything was wonderful about it. My health started to collapse. I couldn't work out why. And then the hours that the university wanted, I was supposed to do a day and a half a week and I couldn't get away with doing. If I did my usual Monday and then went off to conduct somewhere else, um, I went, for example, to conduct the War Requiem in Toronto. I did a whole day of teaching in Boston. Then I flew to Toronto to take an evening choir rehearsal, did all the rehearsals, did the Thursday night War Requiem. I had the Friday off, flew back to Boston, did a day's teaching, flew back to do the Saturday performance. And at the end of that, I just thought, I can't keep this up. It's just too much. So I gave up the job. So academic is, didn't work. So I might have done the law, 
um, it would have been something like that because I always wanted to move into a semi-structured career and I thought <laughs> I thought conducting would be structured I didn't realize it, it wasn't at all if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink you know um, way back in 1985 when I was still working for Sadler's Royals Royal Valley we dropped off in Mumbai Bombay then mm. for two weeks and I stayed in the Oberoi Hotel and visited every night the Taj Mahal Hotel, which was just around the corner on the peninsula, mm. uh, and uh, had the greatest Indian food I've ever had. Um, these were the two hotels that were involved in the terrorist incident. Mm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. In the early years. And years later, I'm in Vancouver and Sydney, I met a man who had been taken hostage um, at that time, and I talked. We talked. We had a long conversation. He became a, good, a very close friend, um, although we don't see each other much. Um, his name is David Jacobs. If you can look him up online, mm. David Jacobs, Sydney lawyer, and the, see the extraordinary story of his experience of the siege. It made such an impression on me to be in India and to make music with Indian musicians, um, and of course, in Indian food, it, British cuisine now is fantastic. But when Indian food started to hit the streets in the uh, 60s, 70s, mm. British food was rubbish. I mean, <laughs> absolute rubbish. And Indian food was a revelation. Uh, and um, I'm not talking about your average chicken tikka masala, although that's wonderful too, but just the whole concept of cooking in that way. Mm. So uh, if I was, um, if this were my last day on earth, if I was... Uh, on death row or whatever it is you've got lined up for me. Um, <laughs> I think what I'd do is I'd have uh, an Indian meal, maybe cooked by the restaurant that I used to go to in Luxembourg. Um, I'd probably have uh, uh, a glass of uh, Cobra bottled beer or maybe Kingfisher, but I'd probably mm. wash it down with an Indian beer. And um, I'd follow that with a, an Irish coffee with English whipped cream on the top because it's made better in England than in Britain than anywhere else. Hmm. And, um, and then when you weren't looking, I'd have half the after eights on the plate. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> uh, can I thank you, Bromwell, for a wonderful hour and a half chat together. Uh, I had a wonderful time and, and I hope to see well, you very soon when all this is over. Thank you, Michael. And thanks again for that great performance you did with the BBC of my piece. I was, uh, Absolutely thrilled with it, as, as I hope you, you realise. Thank you. That's brilliant. We've done the live ending and, and that's super. Um, what a pleasure it's been. Wonderful. Um, 
uh, I've chatted often, though I must tell you a story um, about um, you getting the job in, in uh, BBC. I'm, uh, I know it was Alistair that first emailed you, and because Alistair and I are very, very good friends. We've, uh, I think we've shared a stage about 120 times together now. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and he, he messaged me, and, uh, or I, we were chatting on WhatsApp or whatever else, and then he, he, let, he let it slip that um, they'd appointed somebody at the BBC. And he said, uh, it, I, he said well, I said, well, go on, tell me who it is. He said, no, you've got to guess. So <laughs> I, started, <laughs> I started guessing. Um, and, and the minute uh, he told me about LA and New York, of course, I guessed it was, it was you. And I said, brilliant, perfect fit. Because by then I'd just I'd done two or three things with BBC Concert Orchestra. I said, it's a perfect fit, you know, because of your background in jazz and all the stuff you've done and composing. And, and um, yeah, I just wanted to tell you that, uh, yeah, oh. I, the, a, a whole evening of guessing games. Well, Alistair, <laughs> I was, uh, <laughs> he, he wasn't helping me. In fact, he was leading me down all sorts of blind alleys. But um, yeah, I'll thank him again for introducing us and... Um, well, thank you. He's a, he's a, I mean, he's a, he's a one-off. He's, he's yeah. Alistair. I mean, there's nobody quite, nobody quite like him. I mean, I, I knew him when he was um, um, a percussionist in the Sad as Wells Orchestra mm. back in the 80s. Well, it was, um, it was a surprise, you know. I did a gig with them um, and I didn't even know that the, there was a job there. Yeah. And about six months later, it was a long time after, I got a message from Andrew Colley, um, any chance we could meet and chat ab about this. Mm. And um, anyway, I was, uh, it's great. I've, I've really, uh, really enjoyed it. And they've, everyone has been so kind during my, you know, cancer. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's been, I mean, that was really, that whole experience was pretty dire. Yes. Um, and I, I couldn't conduct lots of concerts, as you know. Mm. Um, and then, uh, I finally get back to health and all this happens. I mm. hope you're safe somewhere. Where are you? In Birmingham. I'm in Birmingham, yeah. I'm in right. with my, my two kids and my wife and my mother-in-law and, you know, we've got enough space. I've got a garden and all of that sort of stuff. And, oh, that's uh, a relief, yeah. Are you yeah. still playing the violin? No, I stopped six years ago, completely stopped. Um, right. Best thing I ever did. I, uh, the management of the CBSO helped me do that. They, they basically gave me a two-year sabbatical and said, look, you want to go and be a conductor. We want you to be a conductor. Um, you know, we'll keep your job open for two years. And how lovely! How yeah, lovely! About six weeks into my two years sabbatical, I realised there was no way I was going back. Um, yeah, and I've loved it, and it's sort of flourished ever since. And uh, really, really pleased I did it. Um, and now, looking back in hindsight, which I suppose you know we've just been here for the last hour and a half. Uh, I'm glad I'd played for 20 years because it means that I sort of know how it works really from the inside, and I, I, I'd struggle. You know, um, I think it's one of the, my my sort of selling points. So I'm, I'm I'm not you know I'm not upset that I didn't do it earlier. I'm very pleased I, I I've done both. Um, right. Yeah. Well, good yeah. on you. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's um, and let's face it, that's a great pathway to becoming a career. Uh, yeah. Yeah. To becoming a conductor. I mean. Yes. Yeah. Well. Um, yeah. I, I think so. I mean, the hardest thing, of course, is that. Um, you, there is the poacher term gamekeeper. They, you know, there are people I grew up with with twenty odd years in the in the CBSO who now barely speak to me because I've become one of them. You know, which is incredibly immature, but that's just how some. But that really tells you more about them. Yes, of know. course. Yeah, yeah. And exactly. actually, uh, I'm sure you don't encounter that when you go to other orchestras. Uh, it's, no, um, no, yeah. No. And actually, I think that's a peculiarly British thing because mm. in uh, in North America there are lots of. Uh, 
conductors who've returned to orchestras um, with careers and uh, I, I don't know, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a little, e I find the whole pathway um, to being yourself on the podium is an easier thing in North America than, mm. and it's hard when you conduct your colleagues. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I, I said it on the other day on one of these podcast things that hasn't gone out, but uh, they're still the hardest orchestra I ever have to conduct. I've conducted them 250 times. You'd think it would be easy by now. <laughs> but it, there yeah. are still, there, you know, there are still people there who remember me, you know, pissed in a hotel corridor when I was 22. And so, you know, they, they probably find it hard to take, take me seriously now i've reached 50 and only conducting um well you know we don't we all grow and we yes. all develop across life and i think um those people that don't grow that stagnate um we just have to uh smile and yeah. turn the other cheek you know? yeah exactly yeah um uh, at, at one point, I, I was going to stop you and ask you whether it was a particular bit in the middle of uh, Preludes, Fugues and Riffs, the bit where the, all the dotted lines are on the score that Bernstein was giving you some coaching on. Was it that bit? It was actually, um, I don't remember the dotted lines, but it was the no. bit, um, it was uh, in the uh, first movement, it goes into cut common time. Uh, sorry, it's, it, it, it's very fast. Yeah. It goes into slow cut common time. Oh you know, yes, so yeah, it's sort of yeah. a stripper yeah. tempo sort of thing. It was it, it was that section. And yeah. I was being I was being so Anglo-Saxon and boring, <laughs> and he just and he very gently stood up there and he and uh, I actually um, uh, there is footage of some of the other works, but that's the footage that has sort of survived and was yeah. used in a, in a Bernstein documentary, um, and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, well, you if you watch it, you'll see exactly. Yeah, I'll, I'll look it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, huge thanks. Um, oh, it's pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. Uh, you'll this episode will probably go out in early September. Uh, that's how far away because I'm dripping them out one a week. Um, All right, so, no good idea I'll, because yeah. Do let I'll, me know and I'll. I'll I will. Yeah, I'll, I'll email you and next time you're back over and if I'm not working, I will come down to London, watch the concert, and come and say hi. Um, well, it would be wonderful to get together and have dinner because I'm sure we have a lot more in common than uh, yeah, yeah. Than, uh, than we think. Yes. But thank you. And thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. Not a problem at all. Yeah. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs> and you too. <laughs> yeah, cheers. All right. Thanks, Bye. Michael. Bye-bye. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. I will be taking the next six weeks or so off from the podcast, partly to take a summer holiday, but mainly to find time to organise and record more interviews for you to enjoy. I intend to return at some point in September, and when I do, I will be chatting with the first Brazilian conductor to appear on the podcast. After studying in Zurich, he returned to his homeland to become resident conductor at the Teatro Sao Paulo for two years and is now enjoying a flourishing international career as a guest conductor. But until then, bye-bye.